I found out that Fortini mushrooms grow in the UK and that's what kicked the whole thing off. That was probably 18, 18 years ago now maybe, 18 or 15 years ago. Uh, I was sort of after uni sometime and I was watching a programme and it may have been River Cottage, it may have been Jamie Oliver, I remember seeing both of them at one point and they, they went and found Fortini mushrooms. That was Lisa Cutcliffe, who joins us on the podcast today. We had a really, really good chat. Lisa's a forager, um, and who doesn't want to get free food? Um, we had a fantastic um, chat about all things foraging, how she got into it, and and how you can get into it as well. She gives some great tips. So I'm standing in uh, what we call number 10 greenhouses, right at the back of our, our nursery. I've done the introduction to the podcast from here before. Um, and it's where we do all our displays. We set them all up and if you've watched any of our videos on YouTube that's where uh, they're filmed in and I'm looking at our Hampton Court display which is 15 foot by 15 foot it's about half finished now we're a week off actually going to Hampton Court and, and setting it up and we've just come back from Gardener's World and Chatsworth as well so we won uh, silver gilt at both we actually got, uh, they call it a silver mirror at Gardener's World. Um, we got silver as well, where we displayed uh, all of our grow kits as well. Uh, so really, really happy. It's been a fantastic season so far. And we're looking to top it off with our last show of the year, which for us is is Hampton Court. So if you, you get along there, make sure you come and say hello. Uh, but without further ado, let's start the podcast. Hi, you're listening to Plants and Me, the podcast that is all about plants, gardening, and the people who are passionate about them with your host, Alan Lodge. So welcome to the podcast, Lisa. Hi, nice to be here. Yeah, thanks very much for coming. It's really nice of you. We had a few technical issues, um, but we're here. <laughs> we are. Um, so tell me a little bit about you and your business. Yeah, so... Oh, I'm Lisa. Um, I run Edulis Wild Food. Well, I think it might be pronounced Edulis, actually, but anyway, I say Edulis. Uh, and um, it means edible in Latin, and it's often the uh, second half of the Latin name of a lot of edible plants. Um, so it seemed to work for what I do, which is foraging and wild food. So I've got a real passion for that, a real passion for food you can find well, anywhere, not just in the the rural wild places, because I live in the I live in Leeds. So there's urban foraging. I forage in my own garden. I, I eat all the weeds in my own garden. So <laughs> there's so much you can eat out there that's not cultivated, and uh, that's what I'm passionate about. Excellent. And how did you get into it? Well, <laughs> I found out that portini mushrooms grow in the UK, and that's what kicked the whole thing off. That was probably. 18, 18 years ago now maybe, 18 or 15 years ago, uh, I was sort of after uni sometime and I was watching a programme and it may have been River Cottage, it may have been Jamie Oliver, I remember seeing both of them at one point and they they went and found Porcini mushrooms um, on the show and I was, I'd just bought this little package from the supermarket the day before to make a wild mushroom risotto or something and you know there was like 10 shriveled up little pieces of this thing for a fiver I, was, I thought wow this must be this massive expensive mushroom that, to be imported from Italy or whatever and so it, it just was amazing to find out they grew here and that was it I thought right I want to find one that sounds amazing so got books and just 
poured over them and, and just studied and I, I taught myself. That's that's how I learned. Excellent. I didn't know anyone else who was interested. So yeah, me and books for a long time being really cautious and that's how I got into it. Well, yeah, that's one of the things I was going to lead on to. How cautious do you have to be? Cautious but not fearful. I think there's a difference between the two. Um, you need to be careful. You need to be 110% sure of, of that what you've found is what you think it is. Um, there's a lot of really good ID books out there. So you can use field guides for mushrooms, for um, seaweeds or wildflowers. And they will tell you what species you have, but a lot of them don't tell you whether something is edible or not. So you kind of need a combination of books to just find a random thing and then to ID it, you're probably better off with a field guide because that will have as you know most of the available um, species. But you also need some books that are on foraging, which just have all the edible species in and some of the really poisonous ones because that will narrow it down right. to use them in combination. Um, you need to ID it first. First, The first question is always, what is it, not can I eat it? Because if you find out what it is, you should be able to then find out whether it's edible, especially with the internet being what it is now. Uh, when I was first starting doing this, I I wouldn't have known where to start on the internet because it there wasn't a lot of resource out there that, that there is now available to us. Um, so it really was published books and photos from you know peer-reviewed, absolutely correct books is what you need to be using. There's a lot of misinformation on the internet and there's a lot of mislabeled photos. Some of them are dangerously mislabeled because there are things that are poisonous that look like things that are edible. So you do have to be cautious. If, if you're a <laughs> if you're a spontaneous blase kind of person then maybe foraging is not for you <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah i'm trying to think of uh, a particular mushroom i think there's one that's very poisonous and the one that's very nice but they look very similar uh well there's a there's there's lots of things that could apply to um there's very few that are deadly poisonous right yeah, they, they can seem superficially similar um, until you start to really get to know the field. And oh, I'm trying to think of an example. I mean, well, the, for example, there's um, there's the morel, which is a uh, very sought after spring mushroom. Uh, there's a few different varieties of them, but they're, all the true morels are hollow inside and they, they um, have a sort of honeycomb structure on the top, with a, usually with a dark or a... Or a blondy brown cap and then a, a white stem and if you cut it in half it's completely hollow and there's, there's another one called the false morel which isn't it, it's sort of solid inside and you wouldn't have that clear empty space in the middle of it and the the the, the turban fungus or the, the 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 false morel is very very poisonous um whereas the morel as long as you cook them it they'd be absolutely edible so yeah you, you need that superficially they could look quite similar so there's lots of examples of that kind of thing right okay yeah and when you talk about poisonous are you talking about purely only when eaten or is it to touch as well uh largely nothing poisonous will get through your skin on contact so certainly with fungi um i don't believe there's any need to 
worry about handling them it's just don't go licking your fingers and things but so few of them are that poisonous like really very few compared to the you know 10,000 plus you know there's probably way more than that of species of fungi and and um that we know of in the UK oh just in the UK there's that many I mean it, it, the number keeps changing all the time um I think there's maybe like 4,000 that are the macro mushrooms so they're actually sort of tangible fruit bodies rather than little tiny slime molds or you know crusts and stuff so yeah there's i don't know say four four thousand sort of tangible mush that's something you would recognize as a mushroom um and a lot of them are just little brown jobs you know (laughs) like with birding (laughs) it's very similar uh a lot of the time it is just, oh, I don't know, a little brown job. Not, But what I have done is gone and learned all of the really edible mushrooms and all of the really poisonous mushrooms. And that, that was when I felt like, okay, I, I kind of feel like I'm standing on my own two feet here with this. It's just with, This is just with the fungi. I mean, I'll go into plants in a minute as well. But mm. if, if I could, I just had a repertoire and I know what I was looking for and I just sort of ignored everything else for a while and, and focused on looking for the ones that had the characteristics that I wanted. And then if I knew that an edible had a potential lookalike, then, you know, you, you just study it really hard. There's all these different attributes that you can use to help you identify a mushroom. Um, and you would do the same with plants or anything else. And certainly to start with, I would suggest that you, you want all the expected ID features to be there. Later on, you can get more discerning that sometimes, you know, things are a little bit variable, but you know it's that because of X, Y, Z. But when you're starting out, um, to be absolutely, in terms of that caution, make sure that all the expected ID features are in Okay. And you said you did it straight after studying. Did you study anything like this? Uh, I actually did biology, but we we didn't do anything on this sort of front. No, we didn't. Um, it helps a little bit with just sort of understanding nature a little bit but actually a lot of this was just out of my own interest and and we didn't cover any of this in my degree or a levels or whatever before um i've always just been fascinated by nature and a lot of what i apply with the foraging has actually come from my childhood it's from gardening from bugging my grandparents going around their garden going what's this what's this what's this you know little five-year-old and she's like well you know this is that this is this yeah sometimes she'd give me the latin name and not the whole thing but just the first part you know so i learned aquilegia as aquilegia rather than columbine for example Hmm. and um you know kids are just sponges they sponge all this up so yeah I, i learned everything in my grandma's garden everything in my parents garden um and i think if you start recognizing patterns at that stage in your life, you you can continue to apply that sort of uh, diagnostic approach to identifying something. Yeah, definitely. And it's funny, actually, we ask people about how they first started getting into gardening or in your case, foraging. Um, And grandparents uh, have a lot to, to, to be thanked for. Yeah, absolutely. I think my, my, dad was only into gardening because his parents were and it was definitely his parents that were the the ones that got me into it but they just did they had a they had a fabulous garden and I just found everything really interesting but then even in my own garden like I'd watch out 
for birds and I'd sit and, and, and write down which birds I'd spotted from the book that we had, you know, and that was just what I was like. So I mean, I did lots of other things as well. I was into all sorts of things. I love art. I love taking pictures. I, I love being outside and uh, and whatever. So, yeah, but I, we had field guides for everything uh, except for fungi. <laughs> so I didn't learn anything about fungi as a kid. Right. That was what started my journey, was that I found a new area of something that I could relate into for, through food, which is another passion in my life. Uh, it was a whole area of nature I didn't know anything about. And that, I think, was part of the drive. It was just a big treasure hunt. That's what it is. And they're so elusive and so relatively unpredictable. Um, it really is. Yeah, it's a treasure hunt. Yeah, and it's um, looking over your Instagram, there's some amazing pictures. The colours and textures and shapes and the variety. It, just within the, because I'm mainly putting the edible ones up, you know, they're such colour, every colour of the rainbow pretty much. And, you know, there is a mushroom that has that uh, colour and, yeah, they really vary in shape and size and how they reproduce, how they produce spores, how they... Um, expel those um, it's a very interesting kingdom um, so the fungi was my first love because I already knew a lot about plants but not their edibility I, then I learned about fungi intending to learn about edibility with them but after a while I realised that you know you often go out a lot and you don't find any mushrooms um, so you don't come home with anything to eat so I just thought well hang on plants are edible you know all right, I'm going to go and re-explore that area so then I realised I actually knew a lot of my plants already. I knew them as weeds or as just a native wild plant um, or as a garden plant. That's what really surprised me. How many ornamental in Big Bunny ears, uh, how many ornamental plants have edible parts? Hmm. They're just native to somewhere else, that's all. Yeah, it's quite amazing. For a very, very long time, um, we used to grow a hanging basket plant that turns out to be sweet potato. No, I, yeah, I know the one you mean, I think. Hmm. Ipomia, I think, is the right name. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, so it's really strange. It's not the one you'd necessarily grow to commercially produce sweet potato, but it is the same plant. Same family, yeah. Hmm. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, it's really, really strange when, especially I stumble across something like that. Um, I was reading a book uh, to find that fuchsia berries are quite popular around the world. Oh, yes, they are. Um, they they again like a lot of things with cultivars because that's what I'm coming across. You know, I see all these different types, um, and you know they are all the same family and everything. But you try different ones, and they're they're quite different in how much bitterness or sweetness they have in them. And um, I say that about cherry blossom as well. It's also people come on my courses and in the spring and we almost always end up tasting some cherry blossom um wherever we are there's often some around certainly within leeds because we're often in parks and green spaces or, or it's a private uh place and they've asked us to come and look around their grounds you know whatever we're doing but there's often cherry trees and they're really variable because you've got you've got the sort of wild type with just the simple five petals they're white they're quite small flowers um, but then you get the big showy multi-petaled pink ones and 
and you know and everything in between and they the flowers taste quite different different levels of bitterness and what I didn't do originally was eat the ovary at the back of the flower because that's actually where the almondy flavour is um so you get the sour cherry mixed with a sort of an almondy edge but just eating the flowers raw they are just a little bit of a bitter aftertaste but if you make a syrup with them or you you candy them or you um you can put them in, infuse them into a vinegar or something you know whatever you want that can make it just a bit more interesting or you can smush the flowers up and put them into a cake mix or something so you just sort of get that natural cherry flavor and just so we know is that any cherry blossom well, this is the thing. As far as I know, anything in the Rosaceae family, um, Rosaceae, I never know how you say these Latin names, <laughs> anything in the wider rose family, so especially in the apple family, the, 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 there's nothing poisonous in that. Uh, obviously, there's the seeds and you, know, you can get the cyanide, cyanoids and whatever in the uh, pips and things, but the actual fruits... Um, and the blossoms, I believe, are all safe to eat. Right. So it's, you just got to be sure, again, through plant patterns and whatever, that, that you've got the rose family. And indeed, cherries and plums and pears and quinces, medlar, rowan, all of them, they're all in that wider family because they have the same five petals, the little, the, the um, the, is it, I suppose it's the, the calyx, the calyx is on the yes, end yep. of the um, berry or the end of the fruit um you know again they're, they're in fives you cut it in half you've got the fives inside it the ovaries and the seed containers and things so yeah they're, they're all such different so even like pyracantha that's in the same family so you can eat pyracantha berries really they're not very sweet <laughs> need to be put with sugar and stuff but yeah once you realize that it um it really opens up what else is out there that might be in that family and people have been exploring these different things but yeah which cherry cherry blossoms are all fine to eat as long as it's a genuine cherry so i'm not talking like bird cherry or cherry laurel you know don't go by name you've got to go by actual plant family just to be clear on that because um i think i don't know if bird cherry is poisonous but certainly not edible as far as i know and cherry laurel which is again a completely different thing um is definitely um, got the berries are definitely poisonous on that but if you've got a genuine prunus cherry um tree then the blossom is edible interesting i didn't know that yeah and it, it, again you can just put it on top of cakes and stuff you don't have to actually eat it but at least it, you know it's something you know is not it, it is edible it, you know i think i don't want to put anything on food that's not edible you know you don't need to expect people to know what to pick off you know just because it's pretty i don't agree with that yeah okay and so you're you say you're in leeds um so on a saturday morning you put your boots on and and go out and do some foraging what do you look for first uh it depends what time of year it is and and what i've had recently what i've not had for ages what's just coming into season and i'm excited about having again you definitely uh get you really feel in tune with the seasons when you're in your foraging because you just can't have everything all the time or most things and um, so I, I find myself looking forward to the next batch of, of species that come back out you know that I haven't had for nine months ten months you know it, it's lovely I really enjoy that part of it the rhythm of the seasons is much clearer than it is getting things from the supermarket yeah 
So I don't know, like, so if I went out this week, coming weekend, we've had an early spring. So actually, you know, first first weekend in April, for example, I would be expecting blossoms to only just be emerging. I'd be starting to look for magnolia buds or um, the remains of some scarlet elf cup mushrooms, maybe, which are these little red cups that grow on the on twigs like willow twigs in the damp places um greens you know so the the wild garlic is probably just sort of in bud at this point and and early leaf so the the leaves are great for pesto and um for lacto fermenting into a sort of pickled version of the leaf that it's not strong in vinegar though it, it's sort of much more complex you get rid of that up front hot garlic raw garlic flavour and you end up with something a bit more complex which is just lovely with cheeses or um or on oysters or something that's really amazing and uh, and the buds as well the unopened flower buds on wild garlic oh they're so good because again if you lacto ferment them and then pickle them uh they're and if it's like a slightly sweet pickle oh they're just divine they go down really well on my courses <laughs> um april's also great for, for seaweeds so there's a lot of seaweeds have got cracking again after the cold winter but before they get some bleached by the the hot um summer sun um is all its seaweeds edible yes again you need to know exactly what that means but yes yes they are um in britain as far as i know um if you can harvest it on foot and, and you'll take your you're harvesting it live from the rocks or whatever rather than it drifting off you know you don't want to be picking stuff from the tide line uh, yeah. that's that's washed up because that could have come from anywhere but if you if you are going and harvesting it yourself um from somewhere you can walk out to then yes it, it will be edible well safe to eat right it might necess- not necessarily taste very nice <laughs> that's the difference between edible palatable and, and safe to eat you know not toxic it is kind of a difference between those things subtle differences if you're actually looking at it from a food perspective but yet um they're all safe to have a nibble and see but so there's some that are very very tasty and there's plenty that are not particularly tasty um but they still contain great nutrients and you know we're an island nation we really should be using seaweed a lot more than we have been uh in recent decades and centuries yeah, definitely. Interesting. Um, and is it a hobby that you have to get up early for? No. <laughs> That's good news. Just whenever you're out. Right. If you, if you have a dog to walk, if you walk the kids to school, if you go and have a, you know, a natter and a chat with your friend on a Sunday afternoon, I can't turn it off. My eyes are always looking around for just whatever I see. Um. And that it just becomes part of your life. If, if you really want to get into it, that that's what it is. It's, you don't, you don't. I mean, I do just go out to just go foraging, but it, it doesn't have to be like that. Like, if you're out anyway, if you're outside, where, wherever you are, even in your own garden, there's there's so many wild, wild plants that we consider weeds as gardeners, um, that are edible and delicious. It's like I never buy rocket. Because there's always hairy bittercress and wavy bittercress and all sorts of things just growing in the top of my plant pots. I leave them there and then I then I eat them. Um, 
I'm definitely not a weed freak. I, I, I just see them as food. They're all just doing their thing in my garden. And um, yeah, it's all mixed in together. There's some things I try and you know keep keep tabs on that they are just a bit too prolific. But um, if they're tasty, then yeah, I, I leave them there. Brilliant. Um, and that's, that moves nicely towards the garden aspect. So you mentioned weeds and things like that. Um, are there any other plants that people maybe are growing that they could be eating and they're not? Well, let's start with the weeds section um, because I think there's a few things that are very much maligned that actually maybe you could be eating um, instead of always fighting. <laughs> uh, like ground elder, for example. Um, the little the new leaves of ground elder are delicious in salads in the spring. So before you go digging it all up or mowing it down, pick pick a few of the lovely little the, the new leaves. They're really delicious, sort of slightly raw carroty pars- uh, parsley sort of flavour because they are all in the parsley family. Mm-hmm. I must drop a disclaimer in there about the carrot family though because that's also got hemlock and hemlock water and some other you know very poisonous plants in that family. So again you need to be absolutely sure that you know the differences between all these plants but assuming you do know your ground elder from your cow parsley um you know if you've definitely got ground elder those little little shoots are delicious there's also jack by the hedge or hedge garlic um which is again just very common weed a weed is just a successful wild plant it's very good at at propagating itself uh, and it might be less fussy about where it grows that's all i see them as i i, I think they're they're very successful um nettles yeah yep. use all the tips before you hack any nettles back if they're still young um use the tips make pasta put them in a soup you know they're really delicious earthy and so good for you the full pack full of nutrients um violets you can eat um there's if you have like wild carrot and that kind of thing uh the the leaves and and the seeds on those are beautiful hogweed a common hogweed um the the shoots that come up in the spring are absolutely delicious you sort of cook them like asparagus they don't taste like asparagus but you know you just sort of wilt these shoots down and and Mm. they're just you know scrummy really really nice what's one of my favorite um spring vegetables actually um yeah so all these things are just you know in a lot of people's gardens and they're weeding them out yeah interesting and are we when before you go on to the plants are we unique not to be using these are they being used all over the world and we're just not Hmm. yeah they will be being used and they are actually being used here it's just not so commonplace anymore right Mm. although there is a real hunger for people to to relearn this stuff because their parents don't seem to know it and even their grandparents don't seem to know it now and uh, I think that's why there's there's a resurgence in in wanting to know more about that stuff again but um, certainly on the continent in fact yeah all around the world um, there's they're using native plants that are growing on the doorsteps and I think I don't know if it's the fault of the Victorians or, or what, you know, that that um certainly our mycophobia comes from that period, but um I don't know. I think there just came a time, maybe sort of when Britain was you know, a really big, powerful empire, where everyone, even the sort of the common man and woman, just wanted to be 
there's this want of class and society and, and status and doing peasant things was just absolutely abhorrent so the they didn't and it, it just wasn't kept up so I, th I think so many people wanted to be sophisticated and the farming was really coming into a, a, a more intensive and, and large scale stage and so all these things sort of came together to mean that we we don't have to go out and get all this stuff anymore so and you didn't want to be seen to be doing such you know <laughs> peasant things uh all that combination just comes comes to mean that in this country for whatever reason and it hasn't done elsewhere uh we, we just don't do it anymore hmm, interesting yeah you can see these sort of things on menus propping up every now and again. So they're happy for other people to do it. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I think people are just, they don't have the knowledge. So quite rightly, they just don't do anything. Hmm. And actually, yeah, if you don't know anything, then obviously you don't want to, you don't want to do anything. But what, what I think people are amazed by when they, for example, when they come on a course or if they have some other way of finding out a bit about it, they realize that it's not so big and scary. It is, it is vast if you really don't know anything about plants or, or anything uh, out there, then yes, it would seem very daunting, but you just start small, start with something obvious, start with something with no poisonous lookalikes. And, and that's just how it is. Learn one or two plants a year if you have to, and be sure about those. And then that's how, how you build your repertoire. Even if you just make elderflower cordial, you're foraging. Um, and that's sort of, what I want to sort of introduce to people really is that you don't have to know everything to be able to eat a few good things. Um, even blackberries like that just breaks my heart when, you know, young families, whatever, come on my courses and that they, they'd love to go and do this stuff with their kids, but they're just not even sure enough of a blackberry. Really? Yeah. Certainly in, certainly in this big city like Leeds, where there's a lot of, uh, deprivation and whatever it, but actually it's not just that it, it just depends on the sort of the history in your family as to whether that was something you did mm. in any recent memory um you know I, I grew up picking the things i knew off of the off of the hedgerows and that was just part of our life sort of in a quiet little village in hampshire but um that was because i was taught by my parents it didn't come from school it didn't come from anyone else so yeah, you know, my dad would make elderberry wine, and um, you know, I knew I knew a few things. Yeah, but that was all we did. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It almost takes you back to the famous question about the where does milk come from? Yeah. Uh, um, I don't know if you've heard that story about they asked um, twenty children in a London school where milk comes from. Um, most of them said Tesco's. I heard one about the same with carrots. Like, most of them had absolutely no idea that carrots grow underground, that they're a root, or that they're even a plant. They just hadn't even equated the two things at all. So it's again very similar. Hmm. How it will disconnect. Indeed, yes. Um, so going into the more ornamental plants that people grown on purpose rather than the weeds. Yeah. Um, so things I routinely forage, which is easier to do in a city because there's lots of municipal planting and whatever. Um, so things I would I suppose would count as non-native and, and 
intentionally planted. So at the minute, yeah, magnolia, the petals taste gingery and they're spicy. They're absolutely delicious. They're amazing pickled. Um, I've seen people making syrups and cocktails and or even just using them to as like a canopy holder, you know, that you put things on top of it and sort of eat it as a little uh, mousse bouche or whatever. And uh, that's really great. Um, that's usually the like, I think they're all like, well, I haven't heard of one that isn't, but again, I, I don't know all of the species from all around the world, so I, I don't want to say all magnolia are edible, but um, I certainly know Grandiflora, um, Liliflora, and Sol Solangiana or something. Oh, you're out of my expertise with shrubs, I have to say. Big, you know, big proper flowers on them, and, and I think some of the Stella ones, Stellata ones are, um, are edible. I'm sure that they're all sort of the same kind of thing. Um Again, yeah, the petals are just delicious. So I tend to use lily flora usually, I think, very pink ones, big straight pink blooms. They're just delicious. Um, and again, you just wouldn't expect it. Another one, um, oh, what's it called? Himalayan honeysuckle. It's also called right, chocolate yeah. berry or chocolate berry. And again, that's exactly it. The berries, they're so squishy when they're, they, when they're ripe enough to actually taste nice. They're so hard to pick without squidging them, but they sort of grow in these crazy bracts that hang down like big tassels with multi um, rosettes that go down and down, getting smaller and smaller on these tassels. And they're sort of they're bright pink with these dark purple berries. I don't, I don't know if people know what I'm talking about, but I'm sorry, I don't know all the Latin names. Um, but yeah, it's called Himalayan honeysuckle. It's definitely mm. one of its common names. And those berries that you eat it and it's like, Hang on, it's bitter like coffee or burnt caramel, but you also get this sweetness and it is that like cocoa chocolatey caramelly flavour. It's very unusual, but that, that was a revelation when I tasted that. Interesting. Uh, Darwin's Barberry, so Berberis Darwinii. Right. That, the berries on that are, are delicious. They make a fabulous jam or a, um, vinegar again. Need some gloves for that one. Uh, well, you say that, but actually they're brilliant because all the berries hang down in big bunches below the branches. So you can actually just go along and pull all the lumps of berries off. And unlike trying to pick gorse flowers or something, you don't get you don't get too spiked. It's pretty good. I think it's more dangerous picking slows. I get much more spiked doing that. <laughs> um, quinces, so your ornamental quinces. I think, you know, we're, we're aware of the sort of pear-shaped fuzzy yellow ones, the big hard yellow fruits that grow on a proper tree. But actually you can also eat the, the low-growing shrub variety, the sort of japonica, um, japonica quinces, which tend typically have a bright red flower, but you can also get white and pink and a slightly peach colour. Um, and they have, again, sort of knobbly but rounder yellow fruits. They, If you've ever had... um. Membrillo, you know, the Arte de Membrillo, the, the quince paste that you get with like manchego cheese and then sort of tapas and cheese boards and stuff. That You can make a very good version of that with um, with those Japonica quinces. And they are just planted all around like shopping estates and business parks and they're just everywhere. And the fruits are just sitting on the bushes right through the winter until finally they rot in the spring. So if you can still pick them in February, March in some places and they're fine. They're really, really hard. So you need to, you know, cook them down. But, and, and then as you cook them, they go from yellow to like a peachy, peachy, pinky, orange colour. It's beautiful. Um, so again, you can make liqueurs and gins and then um, 
things like that with them. But I, as I, I always just make quince cheese because it's delicious. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I could go. I mean, there's loads of it. Mahonia, same thing, very similar to the the, uh, the Barbary family. Okay. There's just loads and loads of things. Excellent. And uh, with regards to where you're picking, obviously in your garden, you know what's been there. You know whether you've done anything spray or anything like that. But if people are out and about, would there be something they need to watch out for? Yeah, you need to use your common sense in public spaces. Um, for dogs and things, of course, but also the distance from roads. Um, and yeah, the, the more highly planted and maintained areas of a park, for example, I would generally avoid because they they often will be weed sprayed and that kind of thing or you can't guarantee they haven't but when i say a park you know going on a course and stuff it, it's often it's the the wooded edges and the, the wilder parts which are just left left to their own devices that's where that i would pick things there and often you get loads of crab apple trees and you know there's just tons of stuff just planted around these massive spaces and just taking a few it's just you know it doesn't make any difference to anything um or the or windfalls, you know, I use that a lot. Um, but yeah, the dog thing is really important because, yeah, I'd never pick anything sort of within a meter or two of a path, um, and up to a certain height in a park like that. Um, fungi are a little bit different because they they pop up overnight and um, aren't there very long. And they're getting all their nutrients from the mycelial network, which is under the ground. It's it's not just what falls on that individual mushroom, but again, anywhere near you know gateposts or, or anywhere around the car park, because dogs they you know they get there, they jump straight out the car and go and have a pee. So just just think about you know the dog's sort of behaviour as well. Yeah, quite. Signposts and that kind of thing. They're all going to pee on that as they go past because that's how they all communicate with each other. So. Yeah, you do have to consider that. Um, but generally, if you're actually out in somewhere properly unkempt, yeah, then it's usually absolutely fine. And again, you rinse everything you possibly can. You can also rinse, like if you're going to have salads and things, you can rinse them in some diluted vinegar. That can just help kill off any soil bacteria and stuff that may still be on there. Um, flowers and things I don't wash because, so therefore I'm really, really, really careful where I pick those from well away from roads and, and you know good height up so that there's no way they can be near the dog pee zone so yeah elderflowers and things I, I always just use them as they are i would never wash them because you wash off all the flavor and the, the pollen if you do that yeah sure how knobbly is it how shiny is it just just common sense i think you, you come to your own personal tolerance levels for each type of food yeah and i'm guessing some people are more fussy than others yeah but you know what? I think we've become we've we've become so sanitized in in so many facets of that word. You know, people don't know where their meat because I do wild meats as well, and and I um I use those as much as I can instead of farm stuff. And people again just they see a whole pheasant on the table or something and just totally lose their minds, mm. and yet they're quite happy to eat a flaccid, you know, anemic looking two for a five a chicken that's been wrapped in plastic in a supermarket and they think that's perfectly fine and it's like how many millions of times worse is that really for you you don't know what that's been pumped with you don't know and yet that's fine because it, it's not 
at all related in their mind. Um, it, it's really yeah, interesting just challenging people a little bit about their their sort of knee jerk reactions to things and and what they think might be dirty or not. Versus, do you actually know what's on your food that's supposedly, you know, <laughs> safe to eat that's in the supermarket? I'm not down on pr production food as such. I do I do mix it up. I don't just live on forage food or anything. I'm not you know, some survivalist living in a hovel in the woods. But I mean. You know, I'm, I'm realistic, but I do have something wild in pretty much every meal I have because I've got now I've got loads of jars of dried things. I, I sprinkle sort of seaweed or mushroom powder or some sort of infused salt or um, elderberry vinegar or something. It goes on everything I eat and I love that. It's really, really nice to be able to just have it as part of my life and part of my larder. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's interesting challenging people about where their food comes from especially if they sort of get a bit initially they're sort of like ew that's icky and it's like is it really though let's explore that a little <laughs> bit and yeah it, it often leads to quite an interesting discussion yes quite and you've been talking about um doing foraging courses and things like that what what does that entail yeah so typically it's about um i don't know five or six hours i tend to do and you know we go to the location and we meet everyone there and would we'll, I'll give them a little intro uh, and how not to poison yourself, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, just the, the basics. Um, and actually, I'll come back to those in a minute about the, sort of the rules of foraging. Um, but then, we, then we'll go for a walk and we'll we'll just talk about everything we come across, really, uh, that's of interest. So I'll try and target the things that are particularly tasty or particularly interesting. Um, and that are common. Like, I don't always want to look for rare things. I think people think foragers are all after the rare stuff, and I don't think that's true at all. Genuine foragers will be rejoicing in the in the abundant stuff because that that's what we're wanting people to eat. Uh, you know, use the wild garlic, use the jack by the head, use the nettles. Get Grow to love those things, and your diet will thank you for it. And I think there's just such pleasure in going picking loads of something instead of thinking, oh no, there's only three here. I really shouldn't mm. pick anything. Um, anyway, so that that's what it's all focused on, giving them the, the confidence and the, the tools that they need to be able to go and at least, I would hope that they could pick five things you know, confidently after a, a whole day out with me. Um, so we'll, we'll stop and sort of eat our packed lunch or whatever, and then we'll carry on. And then afterwards we have a little cook up at the end. So, Ideally, we'll have found some mushrooms and things as well. But if not, then it's just it's plants or if it's a coastal walk, then it'd be seaweed or maybe some shellfish or something. And, um, you know, I'll have brought some bits with me and whatever and the stove and um, or barbecue or whatever. And we just we cook up some tasters with what we found on the walk, which is really, really nice. So you've, you've gone and picked that yourself and then now you're eating it maybe half an hour later. And it, it's just it's just brilliant there's something about the whole experience and eating outside and taking your time over things and in generally speaking is it the first experience people have had of that a lot of the time um i don't know some people have, have been dabbling but now want to really want to know more and they've got lots of questions they've come across whilst trying to learn by themselves which i can fully appreciate because for the first eight years that was me um not having anybody to ask um and then others have never done it at all and just think it's going to be 
and we might look at like three plants or something <laughs> and when i show them like 50 things you can eat in one park uh, i think they're pretty amazed and overwhelmed and, and then they're like wow okay i need to go away and do a bit more on this and then sort of come back again once i've digested some of this stuff and you know i think everyone's at a different a different place and some are coming very much from i'm only interested if it's edible others just want to know what's around them and and just learn what things are and be able to discuss that with their kids and or what they can use for, for natural dyes or what they can use to make paper out of or um which trees they can tap you know there's all sorts of things people come wanting to know yeah it's just fascinating brilliant excellent um and how often do you do it is it a seasonal thing or you do it all year round seasonal well i have a day job as well so i, I um at the moment anyway so i I don't need to do it all year round because I, I think I'd be exhausted. But I I do it, so so mainly spring and autumn are the big seasons, but um, I do some stuff in the summer as well if it's been raining enough. Otherwise, I go away in the summer and, and go and do my own foraging elsewhere and sort of forage travelling and then come back. And then, yeah. so, so yeah, the, the main months would be April, May, June and September, October, sometimes into November as well. Okay. Whereabouts do you go away? Uh, well, you see, because winter starts earlier up north, um, I, I sort of go up to Scotland. and So they're already getting some autumn mushrooms up there by, by, by sort of July, August, which is brilliant. So I go and get my fungi fix a bit earlier up there. Um, or I go south back to Hampshire because there's, you know, there's always amazing fungi to spot in the new forest and ancient woodlands down there. And it's just all parts of the country just have a different mix of plants and there's some things I can't find in Leeds and I love spending time on the coast and I love just being in these different, you know, mountain regions and totally different things grow up there. You know, you get your bilberries and your wild cranberries and all those kind of alpine almost type things and then you go down to Cornwall and it's just completely different and some you can eat stuff all year round down there because it's so warm. It's mm. just completely different. And I just go around meeting other foragers, and I've got a van I kitted out, just an old builder's, you know, builder's van I've just kitted out with a really decent bed. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I just, I just bimble around the country in my van and, and, and go foraging and go fishing and go spooting, which is um, uh, razor clams, spook, spook clams as they call them in Scotland, because uh, they scoop the water at the top. <laughs> Um, there's just the razor clams, you know the ones. Um, there's a very yeah, I do, yeah. time and tide that you that when you can reach them on foot, which you can't normally. So that's a big seasonal treat for me. Go razor clamming. That's spring as well. Um, oh, so much to love and enjoy, and it's such a varied topic. So there's always just lots of lovely things coming out every month that I look forward to because I haven't had them for a while. Brilliant. And a few questions we ask everyone um, and maybe geared towards um, foraging for you rather than gardening, but is there a particular tool or, or a bit of equipment you always have with you? Um, a folding knife, it's my foraging knife, and my creel. So I've got like a, what looks like an old fishing creel, so that's my foraging basket um, that's on a strap. Um pretty much don't go anywhere without those um somewhere in tow yeah excellent. because that's the basic tools you need really 
Yeah, and it's not a specific type of knife. It's just a. No, knife. I'm actually using more. I've, I've sort of gravitated more towards like a pruning knife, actually. So it is a gardening knife that I use. Um, you can get these mushroom knives with the bristles on the end and stuff, but they they just get bent and get annoying for me. Also, you you need to know the the UK specifications on knives. Um, so it needs to be under th- three inch blade and it must fold um, and you obviously need to be carrying it for a purpose so um, you need to bear all that in mind as well but yeah most of those sort of slightly bent pruning knives are the ones I'm, I'm using at the moment and often they have a loop on the end so I can just sort of stick them on a bungee because the amount of time you lose them so that I now just have them on a bungee that I can clip to my uh, to my walking trousers or whatever and then I, I haven't lost a knife since so that's really great Excellent. And when you first started, um, you've mentioned loads of books or you're reading lots of books and stuff like that. Was there a particular book, a particular person that really got you out there and really get into it? There's a few. I I definitely have a a Wild Food Heroes list of people who really inspired me and still do. Um, Some of which are actually friends now, you know, because I mean, it's a very small community once you're teaching this stuff. you know, I sort of actually know them now. It's just like they were so instrumental to inspiring me to want to know this and so generous with their knowledge um, online or, or in books and whatever. So, yeah, there's a lot of people like that. The first books I got were um, Food for Free by Richard Maybe. Um, Roger Phillips is, you know, the the, the mushroom daddy. He, he is awesome. I mean, he's like 86 <laughs> now or something. He's just the biggest sweetheart. Um, he he has a series of books so there's the big the famous one is the mushrooms one um it's great it's encyclopedic and it tells you edibility on every single mushroom which again most field guides don't do so that is a big must if you want to learn about mushrooms but he also has one on wildflowers and trees and all the, all these things so ferns and lichens and stuff so he's done a, a lifetime of excellent books on that sort of thing um and actually, the River Cottage books um, that came out, the sort of little A5 hardbacks, or they were hardback initially. Um, John Wright, who's down in Dorset and was often featured on the on the River Cottage programme. Yeah, I think I know the person you mean. Yeah, he's, he's such a dry sense of humour. He's, he's just, again, he's absolutely lovely. He's brilliant. Um, and he, he wrote for them uh, three books that I got to start with that really helped me, which was the, the Mushroom one. There's a hedgerow one and there's also a, a booze one, which has got lots of wild um, recipes in. Oh, actually, there's four. There's a, there's a, the edible seashore as well. And those are really accessible because they just show you what you can eat and what's really, really poisonous. And it just sort of ignores everything else. It, and if you can learn what's in those books, you are, you know, you have a great repertoire. Um, but he's just bought a new book out now, actually, called The Forager's Calendar. And that actually looks to be very accessible as well um for i think it'd be great for people just learning and trying to understand the whole scope of things and when what's out what time of year brilliant yeah yeah sounds some really good books there and some good ones that people could look up um uh, and try and get i'm sure they can find them somewhere yeah but there's, there's plenty of really inspiring people online as well even if they haven't written a book um, there's Mark Williams up in Galloway. He, he's been doing all this stuff a long, a long time and, and has a lot of great content online. Um, does a lot of things with wild booze as well, which is very interesting, as does Andy Hamilton down in um, 
Bristol. There's Monica Wilde. She's up in Scotland as well. She's a herbalist, but also a forager. And again, great recipes and great articles on her site. Robin Harford, Eat Weeds. Uh, he's down in Devon. And um, again, lots lots more interesting, you know, more in-depth into each plant, which again, if you're more of a plant person, being this being a gardening um, podcast, again, there's lots of things there that you'll give you the pros and cons of, of the chemicals in each thing and whatever. And it, so it just helps you understand history and tribes around the world that use things so yeah again his articles are very interesting so that yeah there's loads of people that have really inspired me and um, continue to inspire me in the foraging world excellent and if people want to find out more about you maybe about the courses and things like that how do people find you um i'm on i've got a website uh which is edulesswildfood.co.uk um i will post whenever i've got course dates they're up on there but to be honest the thing i update the most is my instagram so that's the best way to get in touch with me really is to uh follow me on instagram which is at edulis world food that's e-d-u-l-i-s and yeah if you want to see what or even you just want to follow my random travels in the van and, and what i'm finding what i'm cooking what i'm making with things what's out right now i think that's why people like to follow it because it makes them think oh great i'll go out and find some of that then you know it's, it's they use it as like a a prompt to what's out now and what what maybe they could do with it so um do check it out go and have a look and say hi on there if you like um also you can ask me questions through that no problem as well if you, if you think you found something or you're not sure just you know please just just send me a message and, and some good photos and I'm, i should hopefully be able to point you in the right direction excellent that's really nice of you well, thank you for coming to have a chat. It's been really kind of you. You've been fascinating. Oh, so much thanks for the invite. It's been a pleasure. No problem at all. Um, maybe, hopefully, we're up, up your way. We could come on a course or something. If you're up, please give me a shout. Please do. Yeah. Yeah, will do. Brilliant. Thank you very much. All right. Bye. Thanks, Lisa. Thank you for joining us on the Plants and Me podcast. We'll be back soon. If you can't get enough of all things plant-related, pop over to plants-uk.co.uk. And if you enjoy our podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.